When the credits start rolling, but the movie keeps haunting you. Before, after. Then it's time to tune in to Dismembering Horror. We'll talk about what worked and also what didn't. We'll dissect every aspect. Maybe someone we shouldn't. He turned out to be a completely unreliable asshole. Take it away, boys. Hello, Tim. Hello, Ryan. And hello, everyone listening. Welcome to episode 192 of Dismembering Horror, everyone's favorite podcast show where we dismember horror. Today we are dismembering Blood Rage from 1987. For Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, anything else you want to touch base on, Tim, you before know, we jump into Blood Rage? What I was just thinking, Ryan, is how similar in persona and name you are to Rihanna. You're like a couple letters away. I'll take that as a really good compliment. Yeah. She's she's coming back, baby. Cool. I didn't know she went anywhere. She didn't, but you know, she's got a song on the Wakanda Forever soundtrack and uh, oh. you know. <laughs> I can uh, I can rely on you for that kind of news. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The Marvel news. Cool. All right. Well, we like to to jump into our films uh to be discussed with uh, a trailer. So, we only could really find a a re-release trailer, a kind of funky re-release trailer from the Aero Aero video release of this. Mm. So, that's what we're going to watch. So, <laughs> I'm going to give it the full intro here. Directed by John Grismer, written by Bruce Rubin, and all put together and produced by Marianne Cantor. Here we have the film with the working title complex, retitled to Slasher, with the released version with gore cut out of it from theaters, is Nightmare at Shadow Woods, and then finally, known today, thanks to its VHS release as Blood Rage... Blood Rage. Looks like you're going to get a chance to meet the rest of the family. My psychotic brother just escaped. I bred everybody. <laughs> Here's to the new family. <laughs> I think I got you. Hey, who's that good-looking chick there? I don't know. <laughs> got to have friends here. This place is slow death. Oh, we'll find something for you to do. Looks like you two have had quite a party. Here I am. I think that you should go home too because there's a bad person out here tonight. Okay. So go home and don't let anybody in. Okay. Hi. All right, there we go, Blood Rage. Tim, is it worth explaining what was so uh, uh, unique about that trailer? No. Okay, <laughs> just type in Blood Blood Rage trailer if you want to see a unique take on how to uh, spice up a trailer. Right. Okay, so... Um, Some intrigue for you to, you know, chase down. So, Tim, I was sad uh, we couldn't watch this one together because I think that this is one of those that would have been uh, especially fun. Yeah. But alas, 
What would you tell yourself regarding this film via our rating system? Would you tell yourself to avoid, stream, rent, or buy Blood Rage? Um, I think it's bad. I mean, it's really bad. So it's tipping into that just what the hell am I watching camp, you know, unintentional camp maybe. I don't know. It, it, it's so bad on so many levels that it kind of makes it great. But I don't like it, it wasn't landing enough in that realm to be like, oh, I should watch this every year kind of thing. So I'm just going to say it's a stream. Okay. I am going to say rent it. I could see. I could see watching it with the right group or a crowd. It is something I would just want to have handy. I mean, just kind of seeing that highlight reel from the trailers there. I'm like, oh, there's some pretty great stuff in this. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but I'm a rent it for now, for sure. Fair enough. Yeah. Great. Well, Tim, and this is also one of those films where I would just love to get uh, a summary of uh, the story from you. Just whether you watched it or not, and we hope you did, because that's the spirit of the show. We just watched this film. We're getting together as friends to talk about it. Spoilers abound, if you consider that a thing. What happened in Blood Rage? Well, okay. So, um, (laughs) Jesus. Well, you've got these twins. You got twin boys. A trope, you know, that we uh, we love to revisit. Twins. And uh I guess I guess we kind of deduce pretty quickly that one of the twins is a psychopath. They're young. They're like, I don't know, 12 or something. And uh they're at a drive-in and they sneak out of their mom's car. She's on a date with some dork and they see a, another young couple having sex in their car and one of the twins, the psychotic twin, uh, ha- hatchets the dude in the face a bunch of times. And um, and then pretty immediately hands the hatchet to his his <laughs> brother who's in, who's in shock. We might want to figure out names at this point and just commit. Sure, Terry is the psycho. And Todd is the non-psycho. So Terry hands Todd the hatchet before anybody shows up. And um, this leads to Todd being convicted of the murder and put into a mental institution. And we then show up, what, 10 years later? Yep. And... Terry, the psycho, has been living with his mom, uh, seemingly just, you know, getting by, being fine, not committing any crimes that we know of, while Todd has been in essentially a comatose state and is just starting to kind of come out of it with his his therapist and reveal... Um, does he reveal to her then that he didn't do it and that he he was just in shock? I think that's sort of what's going on. Um, but uh, that gets that gets kind of pushed aside as just his psychosis. So wrongfully accused Todd uh, escapes from his uh, the mental institute and and the family finds out on Thanksgiving during Thanksgiving dinner and 
they all get kind of freaked out, but maybe not freaked out enough. I don't know. But this makes Terry... <laughs> they get uniquely... They react uniquely. Yeah, there's a lot of unique reactions in this movie. <laughs> but this, I guess, is the... Well, two things, I think, are the impetus for Terry kind of uh, snapping and going on this killing spree, which is what he does. Uh, the main one is that his mom uh, announces at the Thanksgiving dinner that she's going to get married to her now new boyfriend, or seemingly new, newish. And he does not take that well. He drinks his milk. He's like 17 or 18, right? Or 19 or something like that. So he's drinking some milk at the table with his cool popped collar and red tie that's loose. You know, very 80s. And uh, he kind of he very uh, passive-aggressively gives a, well, now you're the man of the house uh, to, the, to the new dad or husband or whatever you want to call him. And then pretty immediately, at, you know, the phone call happens. They find out that Todd is on the loose. And Terry is just like, well, I guess that's, it's time for me to start killing again. Since Terry's out, or since Todd is out, I think the idea is that Terry thinks, well, I could go unleash my, you know, my desire to kill because there's again a Patsy who I can blame it all on. Maybe that's what he's thinking. So he does. He goes around. Wait, what was the name of the 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 little complex? The is the original title of the Shadow film. Woods. Yeah. <laughs> So he goes around Shadow Woods just carving people up. It's pretty it's pretty great in that respect. I mean, it's just like and and they go all out. So, you know, lots of chopping and stabbing and 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 killing. It's it's cool. Um this all winds up. He's got, you know, he's got his his teenage friends that are all around and and having to kind of navigate Todd being on the loose and people getting killed. Not by Todd, but they all think it's Todd. And um, it culminates effectively with Todd and Terry confronting each other and Todd saying, trying to stop Terry from killing. And they have a, uh, a, a battle in the, in the, in the Shadow Woods, um, you know, local pool, <laughs> the community pool, I guess. And, um, the mother who has been <laughs> we'll talk about her more but <laughs> she shows up she's distressed and she shows up and she thinks terry is todd because i she sees him uh attacking oh man it's confusing she sees Terry attacking Todd, but she thinks that the roles are reversed. And so she thinks Terry is Todd and she still thinks Todd is the killer and the bad guy. And so she shoots Terry thinking that it's Todd and she kills him only to find out that it was the other way around. And this is too much for her to take. So she, she kills herself. And that's it. That's the movie. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, there is 
much more to be dismembered in the film after your wonderful uh, overview there. Thank you, Tim. So let's do it and get on into it. Here we go. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. What worked? I feel like for this kind of film where he's, you know, 80s slashers, what are the things I'm looking for first to scratch certain itches and whatnot? This one, I mean, think, let's say we've done Demon Wind, we've done Tourist Trap, and I mean, this is right up there with, I don't know what to call it, except for just an overall weirdness appeal. And yeah. what that is exactly is probably best um, uh, demonstrated via examples that we'll just, you know, get to here. But like you mentioned, we'll get to the mom more so. She's Something else. She's the beating heart and soul of this film, Tim. Clearly. <laughs> she's, we Ironically, her- who does absolutely nothing in the entire film. <laughs> well, she's doing something with that nothing. She's sitting right. on the floor of the kitchen hand-feeding herself with leftover green beans and corn, I believe. <laughs> um, so that's the mom, and she goes on. I mean, she's... <laughs> well, she's we, should, we, should, <laughs> we should at least give credit where credit's due. Her name is Louise Marie Lasser. Louise Lasser as Maddie Simmons. Yeah, and um, she was in the other stuff over the years. She, yeah, she started in a TV show, a big TV show. Yep, Mary Hartman. Yeah, so it's like she had a career. It's not like this was sort of a she's a weird one off, you know, like something. She she was a legit actor out of the actor studio and stuff. And, you know, so whatever's going on in this movie, I think is largely her being like, I'm gonna just go ham and do do some uh deep some deep actor studio like sense memory stuff or something. She, um, oh, I mean, to jump ahead to things of note, because I did watch the interview with her, she uh, got the advice from actually her peers to not go to acting school, but just to take, um, that they they thought a natural approach uh, behooved her. She did have an acting coach, though, just to kind of, I guess, tie the reins in. But uh, she let those reins go at the same time and just gave it her <laughs> all and was absolutely gave a committed performance and it's i mean it's kind of wonderful so there that worked for me yeah it's so bizarre i mean it's 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 not i don't even know what to classify this as i've seen it over the years you know i've been in lots of acting classes with a large range of of experience talent whatever you want to call it but you do come across this particular style every once in a while and it's really hard to identify what it is because it's like it's not at all how human beings behave so it's like an idea of how humans might behave in this scenario but like there's this buffering almost that seems like it's happening in the in the performer's brain in the performance it's very strange and it can actually turn out to be really compelling because it's it's just so odd. So given the right circumstances of what's going on in the in the story, it can it can kind of can work, but it is it is a bizarre 
way to behave. Well, yes, it is. But I will propose a different maybe theory as to where that's coming from. Sure, when you say it's not like how anyone would act, maybe that's, it's not how most people would react. Yes, that is true. (laughs) And you have certain unique individuals who, when they commit to a very honest performance, will show a side of themselves normally not seen ever. Mm -hmm. Especially under extremely dramatic, traumatic uh, situations like this, she admitted in you know the comment or no in the interview with her, the react her reacting to the dad, uh, the dad or the, her husband's death, boyfriend's death, whatever, was the hardest uh, acting um, assignment um, scene she had ever done, just because she just couldn't think of how anyone would act, so she just kind of. Just try to put all her emotions in and see what came out. So that's kind of what makes me think, you know, she was doing her job of making it honest and emotional, but like not coming from a place like you're saying of how does one act? It's very raw. Yeah, it is a weird I, I, I've always been a bit fascinated by this thing because, like I said, I've I've seen it before, but it's really hard to understand what is actually going on. And even when you ask people who who do this thing. I'm not sure that they can evaluate it usually, but you made me think of a possibility is that when you don't know how you would react in a in a situation, you're then thinking about the fact that you don't know how to react and you're thinking about it's almost like so and this is a thing that happens to actors often is that if you think of acting as an expression of what's going on with you, some of the better um, advice, I guess, or, or coaching that I've seen out there is to think outwardly, like you're sending what you're experiencing out into to the viewer or, or the audience or whatever. But what I think is happening here is actually a syndrome of, of a thing that is often detrimental to actors, which is to point the focus that you're experiencing uh, in the moment back on yourself. And it becomes this almost this weird um, echo chamber or loop inside yourself as the performer where you're trying not to think because you're trying to think about what you're experiencing, but you're looking at how you're experiencing it. So you're like, it's like an inward eye thing that happens. And the result often is this weird, like, it's not, you're not paralyzed, but you're in this sort of like you, you've, you're in like a personal cocoon suddenly and you're having this strange experience for yourself and we're watching it. And because you're not actually pushing your experience outward, there's this divide that happens between you, the performer, and us, the viewer or audience. And I think that that weirdness, it's almost like interference, is what we're say, sort of experiencing watching it going, what is going on? And some, sometimes it's really compelling and other times it's not. It's just strange and it doesn't work. But in this case, because the movie itself is also strange and has like, a, I don't know, I would almost say a, a kind of like uh, a lack of point of view in a weird <laughs> way from a directing standpoint, 
that they're just like, yeah, man, let's just go with it. It's weird and it feels strange and at least something is going on, even though we <laughs> we don't necessarily know how to identify it or like know what to think of it. So in that sense, like I think it's all really kind of cool and in the bizarre realm and bizarreness in horror often is great. And I think it works here. Especially in uh, 80s slashers, I want to (laughs) say. Yeah, a twin slasher. To kind of continue on the thread where we started, weirdness is uh, the big overall what worked for me here. He connected it back, bizarreness, same thing, kind of, sort of here. Just the location itself, it's this apartment complex. It almost just (laughs) kind of makes you go, okay, but it's great because it's unique and idiosyncratic and in Florida and there's like the ramps that are going through the forests and just all these locations that kind of look the same, the little weird porches. It's just like one of those places where like if you're hanging out somewhere and you'd be like, wow, I could never picture a movie being shot here. It's just so normal. (laughs) (laughs) Yet they do. And it's just kind of incredible somehow. I really, I actually, that was a big thing for me that I was like, this is kind of great that we're so used to the suburban, like moderately affluent, um, you know, neighborhood feel like a nice house, white people, blah, blah, blah. Not that there are any non-white people in this movie, but, you know, there's a very specific sort of realm that we see so, so much of horror, especially the slasher horror. It's the suburbanite kind of realm. And this is, you know, this is a apartment slash condo complex. And I I had personally, I don't know about you, I've lived in these places and I've also worked for these places in my life. So it's nothing I was this like, oh, amongst yeah. nature I haven't been in. Kind I mean, I've been in apartment complexes that have fully but yeah, that was what was unique about this place. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I mean I grew up in in you know Rochester, New York, which is sort of suburbia, quintessential maybe. But like when we first moved there, we lived in a condo complex just like this, <laughs> you know, for like six months or something like that. And then eventually my parents bought a house. But those six months were weird and like, I I guess I was just the right age to like for it to, and it was a new city. So we had just moved there. And so it was my first experience with that city in a new place, in a new home. And it really is an eerie, you know, environment to be in. Even now when I think about it, I'm like, God, what a weird place that all was. Um, And then when I worked for, you know, a, apartment condo complex that had like multiple buildings so much like this. Um, I was doing like maintenance groundskeeping, you know, like all that shit. And it's the same vibe. It's, it's really strange. This, this suburban communal living environment has a very specific feel to it. And having a horror film there, I don't know. There's something I guess just inherently, uh, to me, I guess, inherently eerie or creepy about those places. Because you, maybe much like city dwelling in, in apartments, you 
you're surrounded by people, but you don't really necessarily know anybody. Maybe that's true for everything, but it's in a, you know, a tighter space. And like, I think we've, we see that moment in lots of slashers where, you know, the, the, the final girl or some girl who's being chased runs up to a door and is, you know, at, you know, screaming for help and nobody really answers the door in an apartment complex. That's even more upsetting in a way to me because everybody there presumably should be able to hear that and nobody is answering, but that's sort of what apartment complexes tend to be like. Like everybody's like, yeah, I may share a, a, a wall with you, but I don't want to know what's going on in your life. <laughs> right. So I don't know. I think that whole environment is really creepy and cool. I <laughs> I hear all that. Yeah. And it adds to for me what um something. Yeah. Something I love, like the best way to watch these movies, I think, is with friends. And then I did not do that for I did not do it for this viewing but like getting stoned and trying to make sense of the story and like (laughs) the connective threads and everything like that you don't know if it's because you're stoned or not if it's hard to follow I just think that's so much fun so for this one uh, I didn't even need that because of just like the locations yourself that maybe this is part of the what is creepy for you it's just disorienting too because Mm. you have them knocking for help on doors and we don't know exactly which apartment they're in at any given time and you're like wait okay this is just another couple that's a neighbor and how far away is it from where they just were? And then what's so unique about it, um, this feature that just keeps standing out to me as just weird and idiosyncratic, I keep using that word, is these uh, back patios that open yep. like directly to the lawn and are just open. I don't know what it is about that, but I mean, you have, it's used in the movie. He just waltzes right up there and with the machete behind his back. And it's one of the best kills. It's We're so speaking true, of, he though. takes a joint. Yeah. Those back sliding glass doors in those places are, I mean, it, I don't know what to think of it. They, they're just weird. I mean, it's weird because you, you kind of, it's this, I don't know how to describe it. It's this sort of bridge between like a luxury of having a back patio and totally um, being... Uh, uh, you're, you're opening a yeah. door to, to an expanse. It feels like in Beetlejuice, like opening the door to the Saturn or whatever. Yeah, you know? you're, it's like a super vulnerable thing to have. I mean, this is kind of tangential, I guess, but like, this is how the Golden State Killer, for example, the serial killer who like nobody knew of for 50 years or whatever, and then finally got caught. Um, but that was his whole MO, right? It's like these track homes in in California in particular, but this was everywhere. I mean, I remember them growing up too. I think it was an, a 70s, 80s era thing, but having these really kind of rickety back patio sliding glass doors is how he got into most places because the there's no real good locking mechanism on those. I mean, my place in in Hollywood got broken into through one of those because you could literally just jiggle the door and the lock, you know, would fall and open up. So it's like there is it's scary. I think it's it's scary from that point of view that it's accessible, you're vulnerable, and also looking through those windows into darkness I still feel that way. I like I have a back patio here and when the lights on outside are off 
and I just stare out. You, you obviously can't really see anything, right? You're just seeing the reflection of the room you're in and then darkness behind it. And I always get that feeling of like, if somebody walks through right here, <laughs> it's going to scare the living shit out of me. Right. But the difference being when you open your door, there's a wall 10 feet away. And in this, it's just a secondary black pit of nothingness exactly. because there is yeah. no wall. It's so much eerier. So, <laughs> all I right, love the, that. the complex. Setting is great. Yeah, um, so to continue on the weirdness thread, though, kind of like we alluded to at the beginning, it's certain ways people act and react that just <laughs> probably most make up the weirdness of it all. I think the first one that really got me was, like, he comes back from the phone at the Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, everything, like you described, what he's wearing, it's just already just all feels weird. But it's when he just sort of sits back down and calmly goes... My psychotic brother just escaped. <laughs> like, okay. And there's like the stinger sound right afterwards. <laughs> all right, guy. Okay. And then, of course, um, I mean, I mean, maybe it could all be pretty well exemplified by the incredible, just on point, somehow perfectly apropos ending, uh, which you, you know, described how it went down, but the important detail being where the mother and the surviving son just turn into both total psychosis mode and start both screaming, I'm Todd, and she kills herself. <laughs> yes. And just for a little sense of like how crazy it really is, I love the moment too where like Karen's holding the baby and it's just we like cut back to her after a long time and she's like, all right, I'm out. And she's like, after she, like, what yeah. was she thinking? Just that was an insane thing she just witnessed. But like just them again committing to just wherever that came from of both screaming I'm Todd until she shoots herself is great and um, on point culmination of all this weirdness thus far. Yeah, you know, it, it occurs to me that I think I think part of what might be going on is, and I, you know, I'm not trying to take away from the attempt at, at you know, making a, a movie, but so much of these weird moments feel as though there was absolutely no conversation or deeper consideration for how to approach it from an acting point of view. That it's sort of like, it almost feels like when you, you're, <laughs> you're handed a script for the first time and they just say, go... And you're like, well, I don't even know what's happening. So, like, I guess I'm just going to say the lines and hope for the best. So there's, <laughs> you end up getting these very strange uh, executions of lines where nobody, it feels to me like nobody was telling them how they wanted it or even giving them sort of, direction at all and just going yeah that's weird and cool sure let's <laughs> just do it that way if i could be a fly on the wall for the moment where they captured my favorite line delivery of the whole film which was when he kills the couple at the on the diving board having sex on the diving board <laughs> and he walks up to them like he's like right next to him he gets super up close before i guess they really react holds up the machete and the way he says it it's it's with a period, not an exclamation point why it's so good. He goes, you stop that. 
and then <laughs> slashes them. It's so good. You stop that. Yeah. Now that you you mentioned that, I wonder if the thing that we're feeling is, well, God, it could be so many things. I, I, it's uh, part of it may be when when people when a- actors when they're feeling like they don't like the material or they're checking out from what the broader like goal of, of the story is you get this almost well, well, kind of what this the, that line in particular feels like where they're just kind of over it and they're just like i'm just going to say the thing because i'm not getting any direction anyway so screw it let's just suck that's not the sense though that i got from the actor's interview like he was really he wasn't he said he had a great time and loved working with everybody and he was allowed a lot of freedom from the director so maybe that's what it is is being so untethered from a a concept or direction or a, you know um even just some sort of thing to hold on to to be like this is what we're going for that you you end up with this kind of broadness of performance because they're really not being honed in any direction. And that can be a really good thing a lot of the time because then you like all bets are off. Like the actors can just play. And so maybe that's what he was responding to is that he was just like, we just had this freedom to do whatever. And nobody's saying, actually, that is strange or disconnected or whatever. Like, let's do it again. They're just saying, sure. <laughs> Great. Yeah, why not? <laughs> and and they, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of fun. Yeah. I don't personally think that it's good acting to be untethered like that. I think even when you're untethered, being a good director can take that and aim it and you can get something really good. But I, I don't think that's exactly what was going right, on. Right. But here. what are we talking about here? Because that was like know. one of my favorite moments of the whole film. Like, why I wouldn't want it any I different think ever. That what we're talking about is. <laughs> How when you have untetheredness and you let people be random and bizarre, that it can it can revert almost from us being like, wow, this is really bad acting to, wow, that's just so odd that I'm tickled by it. There's a humanity to it, I think, when (laughs) it's when it's consistent enough. Right. And it is, I will say, it is consistent in this. I mean, everybody is weird in this. And I don't mean weird like, oh, you're such a weirdo. It's just like, there's this strange vibe about how everybody is delivering lines. And I mean, I hate to say it, but it's kind of that they're delivering lines rather than like, like none of them feel like people to me in any way, right? Like they feel like actors doing a thing. (laughs) I love it. These so I was kind of like when setting off into this movie. I don't know. I was I was sitting down thinking. Oh man, usually slashers like um, like my favorites will be like you know prom night two something with like a supernatural or like going out like just just some kind of that kind of weird element to it. But then I realized there's another kind of weird that I equally love, and that's when you have the the super regular average looking like 
sandy haired white guy going on the rampage like uh <laughs> like you know very famous the the garbage day and silent night deadly night part two kind of thing um <laughs> that yeah that kind of thing you know what like the the moment there's like you know we see his silhouette like walking holding the machete just with that walk he's doing and my favorite shot in this film wasn't all the any of the wonderful gore in the film but it's when we see him like in his full on mania i think it's right after maybe he kills someone on that that walking forest path mm-hmm. and it's just this like straight on shot where he's got the blood on his shoulder and he's just like proudly smiling and walking <laughs> and it's just like my favorite thing to he see just a dude around like that do that with him that that strut he has <laughs> is so like <laughs> It's borderline Saturday Night Fever, you know, where he's just like, hey, 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 (laughs) hey, just strutting along like no cares in the world, blood all over his shoulder, machete in hand. Like, but he's just kind of like loving life. And I think that's hilarious. It's so good. I mean, it's like that shot right there when I see it, where I go, oh, is this a buy it for me? Like, it doesn't get any better (laughs) than that. But the thing that's crazy, too, is that like, I the gore and the gags of the gore are really amazing. Like mm-hmm. it's the stuff that I like dream of doing. <laughs> um, and and like we we'll talk about what isn't you know what like where the failings are, but like this is some of the better gore gag stuff in any eighties film. I mean, yeah. it's so good. The woman, like him meeting the doctor in the woods and us and then just us not seeing anything and cutting to her cut in half <laughs> is so over the top in the greatest way imaginable. Yeah. Like he so he slashed her with a machete in this at the waist. In half, completely in half, <laughs> and then later when when Todd finds the body, he like tries to put her back together. He like grabs the lower half and like slides it over to her upper half, and then like kind of steps on the fake legs and like stumbles over. It's so hilariously good mm-hmm. in that respect. There's well, the- a reason it's bad. But there's a big reason that it's good. And the the reason it's good is because they're just like, just go all the way. Well, I think they're impactful and well executed too, where yeah. you can see they have limitations, but it completely, it works even maybe for the better because of them. Where like, let's say when you have where... Um, Remember, it's where is it where he gets his foot grabbed? Oh no, it's where yeah, it's where he gets slashed on the bridge, and when he gets slashed, I think it's like kind of on the shoulder or whatever, yeah. or is it he's just stabbed from behind? Um, anyway, it does a super quick cutaway with his legs kind of reacting, you know, his feet going, uh, and it and then cuts immediately back, and then we're in the effect, but it's just like. Something about that works so well where I almost wouldn't want it to just be all one shot. It's fun to get that mm-hmm. quick little detail of the legs reacting, of the feet reacting. So it's just pretty consistently like that throughout where it's just good, just a uh, uh, combination of saw- shots, a uh, good, well, well storyboarded within your limitations. And like then where you just have the fun payoff shots, like the hand holding the soda can or whatever, you know, that's still moving. <laughs> 
dude, when when they when he kills the guy, the the guy on the date, you know, the babysitter, uh, babysitters get told to go away, and then the 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 mom of the baby is like getting ready, and somebody knocks on the door, and it's Terry, and um, and the boyfriend or whatever he is, the date guy. Right at, I've loved this too. The 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 mom is looking in the mirror and then turns to her baby and she goes, she says something like, "We're gonna get you a new daddy tonight," and like, <laughs> and like puts on lingerie. But like going to the door, we know he's been killed, obviously, and she looks through the peephole and presumably just sees his face there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the gag that she. D- <laughs> When we see what she's seen through the peephole, but that she didn't realize that it was a dis, uh, dismembered head or a decapitated head hanging there. That that whole sequence, the gag of it, I think that's why I like it. Because they are gags, right? They are irreverent and they know what they're doing and they're timed out as a gag, right? They're They're edited properly in that respect. With that point of view of like, oh, you know, set up punchline kind of gags. And and they they are funny in 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 spite of being incredibly graphic. And so there's that's a really hard line, I think, to get right when you're when you're doing gore is and it's some of the types of gore that I love. I mean, I, I off the top of my head, I can't think of, I mean, besides like Evil Dead, Evil Dead is like the, the quintessential for me. But like, that's a hard thing to to nail gags that are funny. You know who does it actually is Weird Al in UHF. Like those are gags and they go really, really far. Like Con, uh, what is it? Uh, Conan the Librarian <laughs> is one of the 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 skits in in UHF. Don't you know the Dewey Decimal System? <laughs> exactly. Like, so there is a sense of humor behind this, and like, you know, he he. It doesn't matter that it's literally impossible to bisect a human body with a machete <laughs> in the way that he does to the to the boyfriend, husband, future husband, whatever. Um, Bill, even just, yeah, Bill, like just chopping somebody's hand off. It's like, that's probably like cutting somebody in half with a machete. (laughs) All of those things like are completely absurd, but that is the gag, right? Like cutting a dude's head off and hanging it by like an extension cord so that she sees it through the people. Like that's hilariously dumb and amazing. Right. Well, it's a lot of things. I think you might've been on point where it feels like the director had no point of view. Um, he's mm-hmm. in the, yeah, I started listening to the commentary track. He didn't really, it was only kind of speaking when prompted by the the producer or whoever, but, um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's hard because it rides that line where it's like, yeah, they're gags, I guess. But I also just feel like they're just, they're just doing kill scenes almost, you know? Well, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think maybe, you know, who knows whether or not they were thinking, it in terms of gags, but how they view the kills in it just is that thing. Yeah. Right. Like that's, that's their sense of, of how you do a kill, which makes me kind of think that that's where all their focus was, that it wasn't so much a, 
hey, let's lean in on the story and like make a make a artistic, beautiful expression of of story. Let's just, you know, get through the scenes where people are talking so we can get to the kill. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, for better or worse, I guess. I think the the kills are by far to me the the absolute strength of the film. Well, I wanted to shout out to Bill's death, the date's death, uh, because <laughs> that is Ed French who played Bill, who did all of the effects. So yeah, I was just trying to find that. So who, do we know anything about him? Because I I'm yeah, he's worked uh, on other films and um oh awesome. I just I mean his head, his own decapitated head looked incredible. It looked I know it was above par. That's great. So, yeah, I mean, sadly, for me, there's really three things, I guess four things, but three main things that are totally working for this. The kills, the, 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 the nature and the, and the gagginess of the kills, right? Um, what we talked about before, the weirdness of delivery of things, like just this, we're like in a strange, you know, upside down world where people talk like that and the mom like how there's two times when she literally just stands there not doing anything for like way too long (laughs) and it's kind of like that episode of of space ghost coast coast to coast where the whole episode is him just following like an ant or something like that (laughs) <laughs> and it and it does that thing. This is like a very hard thing to get right. It does a thing where Family Guy tried it too, where the joke is dumb, and so you just go, "Huh, whatever." And then they they double down on the joke so far that it becomes you're kind of like, "Whoa, this is what are they doing? Like they're actually going th- here." Like, this is stupid. So you, you you initially chuckle, then you think it's dumb, then it becomes so dumb and absurd that it becomes almost, like, more hilarious than you could possibly imagine. And in a way, <laughs> the mom is doing that every time she's on screen. She's so over the top. I mean, she's screaming out of nowhere, over things with At her the phone weird, operator. Yeah, her weird smoker's voice that sounds like she's just cooked. Like she can't, <laughs> she can't even like it's just a rattle at a certain point because she's who knows, maybe she screamed a lot, maybe she smoked 20 packs of cigarettes. I either way or both. But like <laughs> it's so weird. Well, in going down the list of what you liked, uh you you didn't mention you liked the setting. So, I mean, you did mention you like the setting, but didn't listing. That was, that so. was the, four, the fourth thing that so, I was sort of so saying, maybe, like, sure, uh, four. Maybe you could go on. Um, but, uh, I mean, <laughs> I want to hear what didn't work for you, because now I'm curious, because I thought this was all pretty great. So, you ready for that? <laughs> yeah, sure. All right, here we go. Next section, what did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. Wow, I can't believe we talked so much about what worked on this movie. Like, that was a long conversation. Well, it's because it's great. It's great, but it's also 
so bad. And so like I the movies like this really intrigue me. Uh, but here's what I really really think just like from a really basic standpoint, the reason it's bad is kind of what I mentioned before. The 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 moments between kills it feels like nobody knows what to do and they're just kind of like going through the motions and it, at like almost every scene feels like we're on the verge of somebody just breaking character and looking at the camera going i'm sorry what are we doing like what are we trying to do but it never obviously gets there so from from just a basic filmmaking standpoint to me that's bad like it's not good to feel that way and uh i feel almost i feel like I said before that having no point of view, we talked about this with, um, oh, what was it? The Strangers Pray at Night, I think, where it just feels like the, the director doesn't understand how human beings exist or work or think or any of those things. And so you're left with these weird moments of just like non-normal human behavior. And so from... From that point of view, I'm like, I'm not enjoying this. And so to me, that's, it's like, and that's, that's, it, that's true in a lot of respects. It's true in how shots are constructed. And, and the weird thing is, is like you said, there are shots that are really good in this. And there are moments that are really good visually. But then there are these. I don't know if I said that. <laughs> well, I mean, in the sense of that you liked the visuals of certain moments. It, I wouldn't of. say it was well shot overall. I li- loved him walking at camera, but that was because yeah. of him. Yeah, but that's a that's a composition, right? That's a mm-hmm. compositional decision. And so, so much of this film is shot way too bright. Um, there's like camera motivation is non-existent. It's 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 like we're just literally being like, let's just get through it. Mm-hmm. And and I hate feeling that way as a viewer, where I'm like, oh, they don't even want to be there. They're just trying to, like, get it done. Because somebody said, and I don't know that this is true. This is just, like, the, the it, this is how it makes me feel. That they don't think that this is a worthwhile venture. And, like, that sucks. Because then it's just, it feels lazy and it feels kind of uninspired. And no matter what the actors try to do to like at least bring what they have to offer to it without somebody sort of, you know, aiming them or, or literally directing them. It just feels kind of like a float, a drift in, in a sea of who cares. And I don't know. It was hard for me to stay engaged at all because I just kind of was like well if they don't care why should I and that's a bummer and it makes me sad as a filmmaker because somebody gave them money to make a thing and then they kind of were like I don't know it feels like I again don't I have no idea if this is even accurate but it just feels like they didn't care I feel like that could be partially true but I think it's the sense I got from all the behind the scenes that it was more that it was rushed versus no one caring. Okay. 
that sucks too. Yeah, when you're trying to just get through the, that's actually that's actually pretty accurate. It feels like nobody had rehearsal. It feels like nobody had the time to properly set the shots up. Right. Uh, they didn't have enough budget or time to actually do something visually interesting with the lighting. So, like, right. yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. But the and that's flip, a bummer. The flip side, though, is those same circumstances is what uh, is what dictated the actors having sort of a lot of free reign and a lot of other people just on set to just you know, make those decisions that led for um, such a unique and now kind of cult status experience. Right, and, right. I mean, but that, but, but hmm, that's really interesting because I think that as a, as a unintended, unintended consequence, that's great, but that's a really bad circumstance to be under. You know what I mean? Like you don't, you shouldn't want, you should be able to make a movie where you can, <laughs> you should, in a perfect world, which doesn't exist for any filmmaker ever, you would want to be able to have at least uh, be afforded the time and, and you know, uh, energy to make the movie, at least attempt to make the movie something worthwhile. And like, great, I'm glad the actors were able to have free reign, but you should you should be able to do both in, in a perfect world. You should be able to make the movie good and give your actors free reign to find these weird moments. It's, it's weird, though, too, because, like, I think of there's a shot where they're outside and, like, the actor who's talking, she's just, like, totally blocked half the scene because of the blocking. Yeah. But that's, like, what makes it fun when you're you know sitting there watching it with people it's like you're you're just cracking up and about it all i don't know but that's but that to me that's such a secondary reality that's the tommy wiseau effect right like be, like taking pleasure in incompetence <laughs> is its own thing that's a separate like reality to whether or not the film is good and I, I, I actually get prickly when I when people are like, you know, like it's so it's so bad it's good bordering on its genius. Like, no, it's not fucking genius. It's bad. It's it is just bad. And you are finding a way to enjoy how bad it is. I hear where you're coming from. I think the exception to that, uh, if you call that a rule, your statement there about things being able to reach what feels like a genius level troll two is the exception. I think. <laughs> okay. I'll have to, I'll have to revisit troll two. It's been a while, <laughs> but, but, but actually, so, so to that point, I think the key element in, in how this type of film lands is what we've talked about before, where it's like point of view, really like, are you aware, like, when you're making something that's that's inherently campy or, like, are you aware as the filmmaker? And awareness, I think, matters a lot, right? Like, it, it can tip the scale. If – and you see there's many, many examples of this. I actually – I know a guy who, who made a movie that just got – I won't say it because I don't want to trash him – 
Um, but it just got panned. And what they kept saying is this movie is and the script is actually funny. And if you had leaned into the horror comedy component of it, it would have been amazing. But because you were trying to be earnest about the drama, you lost track of the fact that there's there's humor in this. And if you can if you can marry those two things, you can really have something wonderful. And I don't I think that this movie, Blood Rage, is doing that accidentally. And instead of like, you know, somebody being like, hey, we actually have, you know, lightning in a bottle here. Let's lean into it and let's make something crazy. I just don't feel like I did not leave this movie feeling like they were aware. I, it felt like you said that it just was kind of rushed and they they put their energy where they knew they had to for a, a quote unquote slasher film. But no one knows they have lightning in a bottle when they're making True. it. Well, yeah, I think sometimes you get the you get the you get the tingle mm-hmm. when it's happening, and you go, "Oh, I don't know, I don't know," but I think we might have something. I don't. I'm know. feeling I mean, the I'm feeling the tingle. Who knows? Though, so, okay, so. <laughs> I, I I kind of hear what you're saying. We're like just watching it by myself. I could feel toward the middle. Maybe I was, you know, it was feeling a little slower. Maybe it was starting to drop a little bit. But it's got like a high kill count. And those moments that are like the weird standout moments, they happen pretty often that I think... I feel like this is the kind of movie that could grow on you, you know, in the right... Grow on one in the right setting. Mm-hmm. Because... First time you're just kind of, you know, expecting, I don't know, more of that or a lot of that. But then if you see, I don't know, a lot of the times if you see a movie like this again, you're so excited about those other, you know, those moments that you worked for you the first time that then all of a sudden you're able to settle into it more and you pick up more on those in-between moments. You actually follow like what story there is a little better and then have fun with whatever is weird and interesting about those aspects that may have not just totally grabbed you a first time in. So I don't know. I'd love to watch it again with uh, people who I know would appreciate it. And I feel like I wouldn't be surprised if I enjoyed uh, what may have been slowing me down this first viewing. I, I don't disagree. I think that's an interesting just thing that happens. Here's a really, to me, here's a kind of a, a, a example that it encapul- encapsulates that thing. When Karen is running through the locker room with the baby. And we know for sure that it's not a real baby because of the way that she's like holding it. And no, running. no, no. I wanted to talk about that all in the same shot. She's yes. holding the baby in one arm coming out of the sliding glass door and then all in the same, then goes and you're like, okay, it's a fake baby. That when she sits down by the swimming pool holding the baby, nope, it starts moving. It's a real baby. <laughs> Well, when she goes into the locker room and it's it's definitely a fake baby at this point and she puts it into a cupboard like a below sink <laughs> cupboard and then doesn't close she tries to close the door but she hasn't put the the fake baby in far enough so it's like its blanket or leg is sort of sticking out and it prevents the door from closing and then she, the actor just sort of is like fuck it and and 
finishes her blocking in the scene, which is to run around the corner. It's like that to me, and this is why I'm saying this in what doesn't work, that completely encapsulates everything that's wrong with the circumstances of whatever they may have been of the, of this movie that makes it bad because there is in no way at any time on any planet as a director, should you have that be the take, right? Like it's a mistake that is very clear and obvious. Just reset and say, just make sure you put the baby in all the way. So like that to me says they didn't even have enough film like that they at an economy of like how much film stock they could afford was we can't even do that shot again because we can't afford to. Okay. I he- I hear that. I want to alter uh, offer a different way of looking at it than just the enjoyment is laughing at incompetency, right? For me it's a it's a celebration of a uh, fuck it attitude. Okay. Um <laughs> But to what end? To when it all just all just works in the end result somehow. When it's like clearly these were the circumstances. These were just people like I'm. I'm rooting for them. Just like stay pulling all nighters, making this thing flying by the seat of their pants. You you get them, girl. I appreciate all of that. I I really do because there there are times when you just. You got to make do. And you feel that in those quote unquote mistakes. That's what I'm saying. Even even in those mistakes and and there's, you know, Oscar award winning films that have mistakes. They find ways to. At least kind of hide them. It's just the, a little bit. It's the Larry like, Cohen effect cut I'm talking that. about, you know, you could have cut around that moment and been fine. And they just were like, nah. Well, I didn't notice. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's a, it's good. But, but okay, so, so secondary to that, or, or, you know, like, the continuation of that thought is that that then becomes the thing, like, that we, in a group, watch and, and, and laugh at, and we end up, it becomes endearing. And so that's, a, to me, that's a really interesting and weird you know, just reality of, of, of things being kind of, I don't know, inherently bad or poorly done, but like charming enough to, to overcome it. So I don't know. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. You can well, always cut around it, guys. All that enough saying. where uh, you'd only want to stream it again. Yeah. Um, you ready for things of note? Sure. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, let's do things of note. Yeah, I'll, I'll say some stuff in there. Here we go. Things of note. Things of note! <laughs> this should be interesting. <laughs> Can we just talk about... This is noteworthy because it's neither good or bad. Can, you, can we just talk about the wig work? The wig work? 
Okay, so every so when we finally get to a point where Todd and and Terry are in the same room and we're having to do this thing, this like classic thing of like there's a stand-in with a wig on that's like doubling for one of the two twins, and every time they switch back and forth, it's basically it's basically the same guy wearing the same shitty wig, even though like they've made a point in this film to show that Todd has curly hair and Terry has a blowout. And then they like do this over the shoulder stuff in that whole pool scene where it's just like some dude with like a not really great matching wig. It just cracks me up that that's where we're at. And like there's a moment too where I right when Terry, oh God. So Todd is getting pulled out of the the pool and Terry has his back to camera. It's all kind of one long shot and the mom comes in and she shoots him. Um, I actually couldn't figure out which was the real actor and which <laughs> yeah. was the stand-in. I was like, wait. And if it's the real actor with its back to camera, uh, why, why, why show just his back in that shot? So I'm like, it has, that has to be the stand-in. But he's the, he's in the foreground. He's the yeah. focus of that moment. Why would you put the stand-in with his back to us in that moment? It's it's so many things about it don't make like logical sense. I guess I think- because because the actual actor is getting pulled out of the pool and we kind of can see him, but like you could just hide him. He's he's in the background. He's far enough away. So there's like I just think the whole thing is like it's confusing. <laughs> it's not good or bad. It's just really confusing. I love to see. Yeah, no, that was fun keeping track of who's who in the shots. I like that. I did forget to mention in what works. Shout out to, I mean, yeah, Mark Soper, you know, talking all about the interesting choices, but I genuinely appreciated his differentiation of the two brothers. His totally. dual performance was great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he it, it made very, very clear decisions between the two, which is great. Yeah. Great. All right. So for some things of note here, uh, we already went over all the working titles, Comple- Complex, into <laughs> Slasher, into Nightmare at Shadow Woods, into Blood Rage. Uh, and yeah, in his little interview, Mark Soper said, you know, kind of like already said, you could make felt like he could make choices. And he likes to think that that explains the appeal that they tapped into something people can connect to. And then Louis Lasser's interview. Yeah, I already said she said the dead husband scene was the hardest acting she's ever done. Some quotes from her, too. Um, She thought (laughs) like her choices. She like they added an oddness to her character. She said um, it just felt right at the time to do something really out of left field. And it felt like, you know, her character just had her own separate story going on. Um, and then she used the phrase too, kind of like I said earlier, everything is just flying by the seat of your pants when making, when they were making it. And just <laughs> to, uh, I don't know, to point out of this, this, I thought this was funny. Her interview, her like 10 minute interview from Arrow Video here on the special features, Moonlight Sonata was playing underneath the entire thing. It was the weirdest thing. <laughs> just to show you, just so you all know. Um, okay. Oh, and then we got, uh, it was it was interesting how it was filmed in 83, but not released till 87. So it's one of those. Oh. So it's kind of unique to see, like, it's it's where you see, you can picture it more being amongst the early 80s slashers. 
And by the time it was released, though, it wasn't quite um, doing what the the late 80s slashers films were doing. So it's kind of interesting to look at it that way. It's a last bastion of a certain kind of 80s slasher within the 80s. Yeah, that kind of makes sense, actually. I was surprised when I saw that it was 87. Um, so can just circling back to Ed French, really, like, a wonderful career here. He, like, was nominated for an Oscar. Lots of, he's won Emmys for makeup. So he's legit, and I think that that really does show that that's part of why all these kills were just so spectacular in this because you had somebody who was crushing it his whole career working on this, even, you know, and thankfully you didn't have them suffer from the same potential malaise that, that you could, if, if, if the case were that people were kind of not into it, like they at least really like he crushed these, uh, makeup effects in this. Um, he did Undiscovered Country, the Star Trek, what is that, six? Oh, okay, great. Best makeup nomination, Oscar. <laughs> he did cool. Westworld. I mean, he's still working. He did the the HBO Westworld show. It was funny. He said um, he was, you know, very much like a lot of people of his ilk, just inspired by Fangoria and all that, and would, um, you know, look at the work of... Uh, the other greats his peers and get inspired and kind of similarly to like the Tom Savini's and stuff thought yeah no you know I'll just have like a cameo in every one of my movies kind of thing would be fun and so that's sort of I think what led to his role in this film but it was after this role in this film when he was like nah I'll just stick to, <laughs> <laughs> to doing the effects being wow the so you're so what you're saying is that this <laughs> that the blood rage killed his dream of being an actor <laughs> the fun of uh I think just <laughs> as far as uh, where he wanted to put his energies and responsibilities on set. Fair enough. Um, he didn't say it, though, like, ugh, because of blood rage. It was just kind of like, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, last but not least, got a shout-out, Ted Raimi, and I believe his first ever role, pre the roles of his, uh, you know, from his older brother, as he's credited as condom salesman, but I think it'd be more appropriate to describe him as a condom dealer. So there's a little three-minute interview with him on the disc, too. (laughs) Just for that one scene. Yeah, I know. It's so funny. But no, there was a good story behind it. So you remember this, even though it came out in 87, shot in 83. So he was, um, when he was 19, he uh, was... (laughs) He got uh, his license, his driver's license removed for a year because while he was living in Detroit, his home, for accidentally hitting a cop car, like, you know, driving too close. He said he wasn't on anything or drunk or anything. He just didn't see it, whatever, made a mistake. Um, So because he couldn't drive anywhere, he thought he'd move to New York and try his shot at acting. And, you know, dad, typical dad of the era, is very concerned and said, okay, son, but here's our deal. If you can't book a job in one year, you got to come home and work with me at my business. And Ted said, okay, okay, dad, deal. And so he said he must have knocked on a thousand doors, you know, sent, you know, given his resume to a thousand different agents, like worked so hard trying to get a job. The year went by doing that. 
couldn't get anything. And he wrote a letter to his dad sort of admitting, you know, it didn't work out. You're right, da, da, da. And then two days later, after writing that letter, he, lo and behold, got this part in Blood Rage. (laughs) Wow, it really broke him. (laughs) No, it's great. It's one of those stories where, like, just as soon as you kind of give in, uh, something works out. Yeah, it's always like that's that's an old, I'm sure everybody, well, maybe not everybody listening, but it's a very common phrase in in L.A. If you want to book a job, book a flight, you mm. know, meaning. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. The no. second you're like, oh, I'm going to go out of town for a little while because nothing's happening, yeah. you will get an audition <laughs> or a job. All right. So blood rage, or as you said earlier, I wanted to shout out, I like to put emphasis on rage, blood rage. Yeah, blood <laughs> rage. we go. Eddie, uh, yeah, so if that's it for blood rage, we can wind down with recommendations as we liked to do. Tim, anything you'd like to quickly recommend Ed for us? I've seen some good stuff lately, um, but I got to say, I mentioned him earlier, and this is why I was even thinking about it. Weird Al. I love Weird Al. My whole childhood was seeped in in my enjoyment of Weird Al. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting him and hanging out with him for like an hour in his home once. It was goddamn incredible. And he's like the nicest dude ever. His wife is amazing. I met Jamie Lee Curtis at his house. It was crazy. It was a crazy experience. And I just watched... His movie, Weird, starring Daniel Radcliffe. And it is true to everything I know and love about him. It is absurd. It's a very specific brand of humor. I realize now how much of my personal humor is actually, you know, influenced by him. Uh, When I went and got Blood Rage at Videotech, I had to also get UHF so I can watch that again. A movie that my brother and I watched many, many times and love dearly and have not seen recently. So I'm extremely excited. So I'm going to recommend Dead Weird, the Al Yankovic story. I uh, I loved it too. I watched it like the hour it came out. I was so excited. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I didn't realize it had come out and I was, and I was like, oh my God. Just stop everything. Right. No, same here. (laughs) So good. (laughs) Uh, Great. Glad you enjoyed it too. All right. Well, I'm kind of catching up with my recommendations on any highlights from my October horror movie viewings. And, you know, always thinking how um, I'm more and more nostalgic now or seeing the appeal of the kinetic, uh, kinetic aughts era horror films. Uh, like, you know, 13 Ghosts. Mm-hmm. Fear, I watched Fear.com is one. I won't shout out that one. I enjoyed that. <laughs> but the one I wanted to shout out by the same director, Bill Malone, was the 1999 House on Haunted Hill. Oh, it yeah. It really is just a bizarre, kinetic, just roller coaster of late 90s fun, which not just unique to that time, but... um. I don't know. It just it really, really worked somehow. Like it's old enough now where I can genuinely say they don't make them like that anymore, you know? And maybe that's an okay thing, you know? Things go in uh, I think that is an okay thing. But um I'm just at the time when I might have been, you know, 
bitter about them or whatever, not giving them a fair shake just because it so didn't feel like whatever I wanted at the time, my style. Um, I don't know. I'm, I was really into it now. So yeah, from 1999, I thoroughly enjoyed House on Haunted Hill. Someday we should break down the 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 interconnected and not interconnected threads between the haunting, the house on Haunted Hill, <laughs> the haunting of Hill House, and their many remakes and such uh, of all of those. Because it's pretty funny. Like if you, I'd have to go find an actual breakdown because it's like really convoluted. But it's hilarious how a lot of them and their remakes, because there's basically two there i can't remember so i'm not even going to try but there's there's two different stories that had multiple versions of of them over the years but they all would come out about the same time and have very similar titles yeah. so there's like the 60s one or the you know whatever and the 90s one or whatever anyway you get the picture but that i love all of those and i almost always when i hear one of the names cannot figure out which one is being referred to until you give like more context. Right. <laughs> but the one you're talking about is the Liam Neeson one, right? <laughs> no. Oh my God. <laughs> that's the wait. haunting. Oh, that's the haunting. Okay. Well, there you go. So wait, which one's the house on haunted? This is Hill? the one with, um, Jeffrey Rush, Fomka Jensen, Chris Kattan, Peter Gallagher, where it's like they're tasked with staying inside oh, and they'll get oh, like a million dollars to stay the night there. Okay, so this is the one, this is a remake of the Vincent Price one. Yes. where the Which uh, was a comedy, right? I a, think. A millionaire sort of. offering a group of people. Yeah. I remember movie. watching the original as a kid and being really freaked out by that. Yeah. But well, so you're right. Then, the, there, then there's The Haunting, <laughs> which had remakes as well. But then there's also the Shirley Jackson. Is it Shirley Jackson? She wrote the original Haunting of Hill House, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's the Mike Flanagan. Man, there's so many. <laughs> Guys, pick a different title. <laughs> the Haunting of the House on Haunted Hill. That's <laughs> Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, I know we just, uh, we're wrapping up here and already wrapped up... Um, Blood Rage, but we didn't even mention him because it is Thanksgiving. Didn't even mention the Thanksgiving aspects of it and how they were working. So just quick shout out, the pumpkin pie being thrown against the wall. <laughs> and right. lastly, uh, the reference to all the cranberry sauce. So like they say in the film, uh, in closing, that's not cranberry sauce. And thanks for listening. <laughs> that's right. And we'll see you next time. Happy Thanksgiving. Goodbye. Goodbye. Ha, 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 ha.